As Christians, we live with the temptation to withhold judgment when we should render it and to judge others when we should not. On the one hand, we easily ignore injustice. We're tempted to mind our own business when we witness moral corruption in our world. We're easily fooled by the imposter, by the hypocrite, by the manipulator who commends us or flatters us, who endorses us in some way. And we shrink from the duty of church discipline. On the other hand, we're quick to judge the motives of those in our church who do not share our opinions. And we readily judge those who hold convictions that differ from our own, who do not live the Christian life the way that we believe it ought to be lived. Or maybe our judgment takes a softer approach and we desperately want everyone to agree on every detail of the Christian life. And when they don't, we get depressed. Or we avoid those people. I just can't bear being around that person who thinks that way about the Christian life. Now we're all well aware of churches who attempt to enforce behavior such that everyone lives the Christian life in near perfect harmony. Uniformity. Disagreement is not permitted. There's one answer to every ethical question and we're all taught what that answer is. There's a single narrow road that is defined for everyone to walk in lockstep. But we realize also that such manufactured uniformity leads not to less judgmentalism, but actually to more. And it really proves incapable of nurturing mature believers who live with joy and with wisdom whenever they are off the reservation, so to speak. They're handicapped as they move into a broader world relating to it and seeking to win people to Christ. But find a church that stands firm on true doctrine, but also recognizes the legitimate differences on in how Christians live their lives, and there you will find conflicting convictions. There you will find, indeed, competing consciences. A Christian, we know it won't last forever. It will all go away when we enter into the Lord's presence. But for now, as maddening as it can be, we can stand together in unity rejoicing together in the gospel, in the shed blood and the glorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And we sing together in unison of His conquest. And yet, we disagree adamantly on how to best please the Lord that we worship together. We have differences. Our convictions differ. Thinking of Romans chapter 12, which we considered some weeks ago, we rejoice together, saying, in the, uh, rejoicing with the words of the apostle, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. And together we read that and say, Amen. By the grace of God, may it be, that's how I want to live my life. And then we disagree on how that looks. It can be frustrating. It can be upsetting as we relate to each other. We can, it can even lead us to avoid those who aren't saying the things we want to hear as we disagree. So what are we to do as a church in which we find conflicting convictions? The conscience of one under the lordship of Christ says this, and the conscience of another says something very differently also under the lordship of Christ, seeking to please Him and to honor Him. How shall we live with this? I think the only way that we can get any of this turned in the right direction is to calibrate our judgment to one another and of one another to the judge. And that's, I think, what is missing in a church that seeks to solve this by external means, by creating one answer to every issue. It is also what is missing in those churches who simply tag into the cultural norm and say, everybody do whatever you want. Do what is right in your own eyes. I think there's a better road that's laid out here for us in Romans chapter 14 as we make our way there today in our series through this book. And that is to calibrate our judgment of one another to the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 12 of this chapter, Romans 14, we enter onto a new section in the book that takes us through the middle of chapter 15. But in verses 1 through 12, we consider three directives for relating honorably to one another when we have conflicting convictions. When we differ in how the Christian life should be played out, how it should be lived out, what is right, what is wrong for us under the Lordship of Christ. So we're, not, we're talking about the context of the local church, the people who submit to the Lordship of Christ and rejoice in that, and yet have differing convictions. We notice here, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, that we must welcome one another as God has welcomed each of us. Verse 1 of chapter 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Notice the word welcome there in verse 1. Notice the word welcomed in verse 3. There's clearly a theme that holds together in these verses. And then also connect that to chapter 15 and verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul is clearly aiming at this word to welcome. This is the relationship that we should enjoy with one another, even with our differing beliefs. To welcome uh, speaks of, it is a call to warmly receive, to invite ongoing, loving, meaningful fellowship. That's how we're to relate to those, even where there are these differences. 
It is the opposite of shunning, of ignoring, avoiding, opposing, or certainly of despising. The fundamental orientation we are to have toward one another as we differ on how the Christian life should look is one of open arms. I welcome you into my fellowship. Now let's pick at these verses a bit more as we look again at verse 1. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The weak in faith. We have to stop here, of course, and ask, who is this? Who are these people who were weak in the faith? I think the idea is that they are weak with respect to the Christian faith. There is a weakness in the way that they live out their faith in Christ. Time does not permit us a full-scale development of who the weak in the faith were. And I, I have to give you my conclusions, and I tell you that there are people who differ with these conclusions. But I think there's, there's a solid understanding among those who would read the Bible, interpret the Scriptures the way that we do, where many would agree on my conclusion here that I'll share with you. And if you want to look at other views, you'll have to chase that yourself, because it gets really complicated. But I think that what he's talking about here are church members who were convinced that they must continue to observe certain aspects of the Mosaic law in order to please God. Mostly these would have been Jewish Christians, perhaps some God-fearers, some Gentiles who had followed the Mosaic law before hearing of Christ. But what Paul speaks here of those weak in the Christian faith, He's not speaking psychologically. These aren't delicate people. They're not sensitive types. That's not necessarily the case. He's not speaking of them sociologically as if they were the conservative members of the church. That's not at all what he is saying, and sometimes it's taken in these ways. The weak are those whose consciences led them to believe that they must keep aspects of the Mosaic law in order to please God. God revealed His Word to Israel. We recognize we're on this side of the cross. We realize that Messiah has come. And yet God saying those things to Israel is really expressing His view his will to his people. And we believe that some of those aspects are things that we must continue to follow on this side of the cross. These are not Jewish Christians, or Jews, let me say, who are denying the gospel. They are not trusting in the works of the law. Paul had a lot to say to such people. And sometimes there was scathing rebuke to them. Read the book of Galatians. That's not who he's talking about here. He's saying, don't rebuke them. They're not embracing false doctrine. Welcome them with warmth, with gladness. Draw them into your fellowship. That's the people he's talking about here. These are members in good standing of the church at Rome. They believe the gospel. They're following the lordship of Christ. They just have some ideas about what that's supposed to look like. But they are Christians who had not yet fully grasped the epoch-altering work of Christ. They were weak in the Christian faith. That is not a compliment. 
Paul is clearly saying there's something deficient in their walk, and yet you're to receive them. They're in the faith, but their faith in Christ was weakened by not perceiving the liberating implications of the gospel, of Christ's death and resurrection. So we get a picture of two kind of camps here in the church at Rome. Over here, there are some... In, by the way, I'm not pointing to this section, okay? Just on the platform here. Over here are certain individuals in the church who are convinced that God would be honored only if they eat kosher food. Meat that is prepared as the Mosaic law determined. And thus, in that setting... No meat at all. Only vegetables. That's this group over here. We could kind of remember, we go back to Acts 15. Remember the verdict there? Gentiles, you're not under the Mosaic law. You are not required to follow its dictates in Christ, but to follow the law of Christ. But, remember what he said? Don't eat blood, which is probably connected to how meat was prepared according to the Mosaic Law. I think it was a concession for the time, temporarily, but it is wise for you to consider our Jewish Christians and not to eat food that is not prepared in a kosher way. So these believers... I would think in this camp over here, probably see themselves very much like Daniel in Babylon. We are now followers of Christ in Rome. There is no meat here that's prepared according to the Mosaic law. The wine that's here is not prepared according to the Mosaic law. And just like Daniel of old in Babylon, we're not going to participate in this at all. We're going to just eat vegetables. Wine comes later in the passage. And we're going to observe certain days. That's this group. What does Paul say about this group? Welcome them, church. Receive them warmly. That assumes, verse 1, that the majority of the church is in the strong in the faith camp. Now that word strong is not used until 15.1. I think there's probably some wisdom in that. Paul is reserving that word for later. But they are those who are strong in the faith. They understand more fully the implications of Christ's sacrifice. And so they realize that this meat doesn't have to be prepared according to the Mosaic law, and we can still eat it. We're no longer under that stipulation of the law. Mostly, this would be Gentile Christians and Jews like Paul. They know they're free in Christ to eat non-kosher meat, to drink non-kosher wine, and to choose not to observe the Day of Atonement, for instance. They realize Christ has fulfilled the law. They're no longer under those dictates. But then, here, in their assembly, are these people who fail to fully grasp Christ's sacrifice and its implications. To this group over here, Paul says, I want you to relate to those people by warmly welcoming them. Receive them. Fellowship with them. Thank God for them. But don't receive them so you can quarrel over opinions. That is, do not welcome 
this individual so you can set him straight. Do not rail against his conscience. Paul is not restricting here honest discussion and honest disagreement, but he is against that, those argumentative disputes that polarize people. Unloving disputes that simply divide. Notice chapter 14 and verse 19. In verse 19, this is where he's heading. He's going to say, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. There's a certain sanctified psychology that's going on here as to how we relate to those with differing opinions and convictions. Welcome them. Receive them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 2 One person believes then that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him, a reference to the strong. The weak are not to judge the strong for eating non-kosher food. They're not to look at this group over here and say, those people are going to the market, they're buying this food, that God instructed His people for centuries not to eat. And we look with judgment then upon them. They're not pleasing Christ. Don't think like that. They're doing something your conscience does not permit, but your responsibility is to welcome them. Under the Lordship of Christ... Don't impose your conscience upon a member with whom you disagree about meat. By dying in our place, Jesus redeemed us from our sins. We've just sung of that. Our sins, they're many. His mercy is more. That's the welcome. That's the welcome of Christ to the sinner, receiving us as his own. If we calibrate then our thinking to Christ's redemption, we will welcome our brothers and sisters because Jesus has welcomed them. See how it's not calibrating toward, I'm in this camp looking at this camp with judgment. I'm in this camp looking at this camp and saying, what is wrong with those people? But we're looking to the Redeemer the risen Christ, and saying, I'm going to calibrate to how He's related to both of us as Savior, as Redeemer, as the one who has welcomed us. So imagine that you're invited by the governor to a lavish reception at the state capitol. And you see there somebody that's really an enemy of yours at the same reception. And you get the feeling pretty confident about yourself that you've been invited by the governor to this place. And you tell this enemy of yours to leave. Get out of here. You don't belong here. This isn't your place. And right then, the governor approaches, looks at you with piercing eyes, and says, I invited this guest. How do you feel? You're like, whoa. (laughs) How stupid have I been? How proud have I been? Could I please rewind this and go back to the beginning and do that over? That was really dumb. In a sense, that sense, that feeling 
is how we should look at those with whom we differ. Jesus has invited them to the table. Jesus has welcomed them into his family. He has given them saving grace. Calibrate to the risen Christ. If he's welcomed that brother or sister in the faith, you welcome them into your fellowship. That's the call. Now, we, we don't have opportunity here to chase too far how this plays out in the broadening circles of Christian influence and relationship in this world. But here he's talking within the church, where there is within a local church, we assume a proper vetting process of discerning people who are truly believers in Christ, welcomed into that fellowship and covenanting with one another to honor Christ together in that context at least. Welcome him. Welcome her. Because Jesus has. Secondly, verses 4 through 9, we must yield judgment to the reigning Christ, our Redeemer. This loops nicely with what we've considered. To welcome one another as God has welcomed each of us, and then to yield judgment to the reigning Christ. There is a Redeemer in heaven, and that is the emphasis here in verses 4 through 9. We want to think in light of the reigning Christ. Verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Paul is addressing here whom? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the weak here. Those in this camp over here, as they look toward those who are doing things they think are wrong and don't please Christ, as he addresses them, he says, who do you think you are passing judgment on the servant of someone else? That church member you're tempted to judge, get this, that brother, that sister is my servant. Think about that says Christ. And so acknowledge that, verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What's the point? That church member, that one whose conscience does not point him in the same direction as yours, that member is the servant of the risen, reigning Redeemer. Right now, Christ reigns and is that brother or sister's master. In Christian, Jesus is just as intent as you ever could be to be sure to set that one right. Jesus is laboring to sanctify that believer. He's actively steering that Christian to remain faithful. The risen Christ is at work in sanctification in that person's life. You see again, it's calibrate to the risen Christ, not to the differences that we have. Jesus is laboring to sanctify your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Know that and live as if that's the case. Paul works out a line of application beginning at verse 5 along these lines. One person, he says, esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. 
One believer observes Pentecost. One does not. One believer goes to the market and buys only vegetables. The other goes, buys vegetables and a portion of meat. Paul says both believers heed their conscience. Both do what they do to honor the reigning Christ. And so I want you to picture here, he says essentially, over here is a follower of Jesus Christ. She bows her head. She gives thanks for her vegetables in honor of the risen Christ. And over here is a man before a plate of vegetables with a side of meat, and he bows his head and he thanks God for this meal. Realize that both are eating under the lordship of Jesus. Recognize that. Think about that. Consider that, he says. Both of you are observing the day, the meal, the food in honor of the Lord. Both of you bow in prayer before that meal and receive it that way. He now broadens the point, making the general observation past just what we eat. Verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Simply put, along every step of life's long journey, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We live for His glory. The vegetable-only eater in the church at Rome would say to this what? Amen. Yes, it is true. And would the believers who enjoyed a tasty steak in their vegetables say any, with their vegetables say anything else? No. Amen. Let it be true. It makes a world of difference when we recognize that there is a Savior reigning from heaven's throne over His people. He really is there. He really is in business. He really is sanctifying his church. And I can rest in that. I can rest in this truth. I can labor to conform my life to God's will without judging those who function under differing convictions. I can actually trust Jesus with you as you trust him with me. Verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is really the redemptive purpose, to live that we might live, to give his life to us, to take our death with, that, with the goal that we would belong to him and live for his glory. Christ gave his life and he rose again. Now in verses 10 through 12, Paul stresses this theme from the perspective of eternity, looking at it in the realm of hope. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment of God. We will stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. So when I make decisions about how the Christian life should be lived, when I respond to conscience and seek to order my life, to honor Christ, it's really hard when other people think differently. I struggle with that. Almost any thoughtful Christian does. 
At such times, I can become judgmental. Why can't they see it the way that I do? Or I can despise people. What is wrong with them? They're so bound up by a weak conscience. It just drives me crazy. And we can dismiss one another. The sobering realization that crushes such spirits is this. We will stand before the judgment seat of God in eternity. That really settles everything. Quoting Isaiah 45, Paul supports this assertion. As I live, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Christian, no one is getting away with anything ever. No one is getting away with anything ever. God sees all. And there is a final accounting before him. Now let's hasten to say, as we bring full theology to the plate here, Christ's atonement secures our forgiveness. We're not going to stand before the throne of God and give account as if the account depends on us and what we have done and how we have earned favor with God. Don't get that picture here. We won't stand before the throne arguing our sinless perfection or our self-achieved righteousness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 8.1. But there is a final judge who will render every criticism that we have of one another mute. It'll all end right there. The quibbling the second-guessing, the judgmentalism, as we look at a Christian who lives their life in a way we don't think it should be lived, not talking about sin and violation of God's Word, but just in the application of it, all of that's going to blow away in a moment of time. And we can know that we will all stand before the Lord to give account. So both sides need to take that into view. As we look to others, they will stand before the Lord. As we look to ourselves, we will stand before the Lord and give account of the stewardship of our faithfulness to walk with Him. I can trust God then to settle all accounts and render final determinations and reward His people as He sees fit. This future prospect then permits me to rest and to entrust my brothers and sisters to God's final determination to love them, to welcome them, and to know that where we disagree, there will be an accounting before the Lord for both of us. And to rest in that. Now as I speak to you, some here today, who have not come to saving faith in Christ, you've not come to embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, You've not been saved yet, and you know it. Verse 11 may be for you today God's exquisite gift. Just the hearing of these words, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God, or shall praise, give honor and praise to the Lord. That may be an exquisite gift to you. 
Do you hear those words and they mean nothing? Do you scoff inside and dismiss them and say, I don't know what that means or I don't believe that? If you can hear these words of divine promise that you will one day stand before your Creator and give account and that doesn't move you, there is nothing I can do for you. But if you think of this and you face these words and you say, I am one day going to stand before the God of the universe and give account for my life and that causes you fear, that may be the grace of God drawing you to the realization that this is indeed your future. The wonderful news is that you don't have to stand there alone. You don't have to picture yourself in your moral nakedness before the throne of God, giving account, giving excuses, seeking to convince the judge that you deserve to be in His presence. The good news is that before the judgment seat of God, there is an advocate, a defender, God's eternal Son, whose joyful ministry it is to represent sinners before that throne. His death as a sacrifice for your sin, His life and righteousness given to you as a gift, that's your hope on that day and no other. And this may be the mercy of God to just warn you of that coming day and to drive you to the Advocate, Jesus Christ to receive His righteous standing so that as you stand before God's throne, you're saved, not condemned. Now as you look at this congregation, if that's where you're at, you look at this congregation, please understand, we're not here saying how good we are. We're not here saying we'll stand before that throne and we have an answer to give to God and we have works that we will present before Him. We'll have notebooks of works that we'll open up before Him and let Him know how good we are. That's not this church. We are, right where I'm pointing you today, we are those who have sinned and broken the law of God, but in Jesus Christ we have found forgiveness and grace and confidence to stand before that throne. It's a confidence that's not in us and what we've done and who we are. It's a confidence that's in who, who Christ is and what He's done in our place. United to Christ, we fear no condemnation before that throne. We have only a keen anticipation to tell the Father before that throne, I stand in your presence with the righteous standing of your Son. On His merits alone, I present myself as a forgiven child. So remember this, you will stand before Jesus Christ. And I don't know, maybe you'll even remember this moment there that you were told of this day, you will stand before God. You will stand before His judgment seat and you will give account how foolish, how empty, how ultimately destructive to anticipate that time and not prepare and anticipate that time and think that you're going to argue yourself into heaven. You need a lawyer. 
You need an attorney. You need an advocate. You need more than that. You need one as advocate who gives you his standing in the presence of his Father. That's the Lord Jesus Christ and no other. And I encourage you to embrace him in faith today. You must have him. Or you are eternally lost. Know that that day will come. Now backing away from these very sobering words that we will stand before the judgment of Christ, let's come back to the church at Rome and come back to our own day and our own relationships. The reality is that Paul acknowledges here that we will have conflicting convictions. We will have differing consciences on some level. But we're talking about a fairly narrow relationship here. We believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're trusting Him as our Savior. We're striving to live our lives for His glory. But under that umbrella, we will live out our Christian life differently. I'm not talking about sin where we break the law of God. There we need to be confronted. There judgment is appropriate as we counsel, encourage each other to leave off sin. But as we live out the Christian life under His Lordship, we will differ. Let's remember the larger call here. Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Chapter 14, verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Chapter 15, and verse 7, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the big picture. To welcome one another, to embrace one another, to know that though I don't agree with you on how to please Christ, that's all going to be settled before His throne and both of us need to love each other as we get there. There's something quite unnatural about welcoming those who live in a way that we do not approve. Now, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks, we will have opportunity to tease out more of the application of this passage in our lives. I'm going to make some preliminary comments here, but it's not particularly easy to build the bridge between their setting and ours. Because I sincerely doubt that there's a single person here where it's ever crossed your mind that I'm only going to eat vegetables in honor of the Mosaic Law. That's not something that keeps you up at night. We are not dealing with that issue here. The weak in the church at Rome, we're not abstaining from wine in order to associate, not to associate with the world. They weren't abstaining in order to avoid the morally weakening effects or to protest the debilitating societal influence of alcohol. That's not anything in the equation. They avoided wine in order to obey the restrictions found under the Old Covenant. Restrictions that no longer applied on this side of the cross. So they were weak in the faith, weak in understanding the implications of Christ's sacrifice as they related to the Old Covenant. But these are not concerns for us. And we'll, we will come back to this by God's grace, but I caution you against drawing quick conclusions and reducing this passage to be simply a template for us directly. 
We'll come back to it, but I caution us against drawing the conclusion that we should apply this passage to say that weak Christians are those with conservative habits, for instance. And strong Christians are those who are free to do anything not explicitly forbidden in Scripture. This is reductionistic. And it's a misapplication of the passage. It can be. We must not steal away any attempt at a vigorous application of chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Remember the context. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now we're going to disagree at times on how to do that. How not to gratify the desires of the flesh. But this is the game we're in, and this is the context in which Paul offers these words. So he's certainly not saying that every disciplined practice by which we choose to avoid fleshly temptation makes us weak in the faith. This is a conclusion that many draw, and I think it's entirely inappropriate. Let me say it again, saying that every disciplined practice by which we choose to avoid fleshly temptation makes us weak in the faith. That's not the point. He's not saying that those who refuse to put such parameters in place in their lives are strong in the faith. That also, I think, is a misapplication. I've walked in such circles. I'm aware of them. And I love such brothers and sisters in Christ But in some sections of the evangelical church, the proof of godliness, the proof of being strong in the faith, is that you drink alcohol, smoke pot, view movies with pornographic content, gamble, dance at clubs, and do whatever else the world does because you're free in Christ. I have strong faith, they say. I can assure you that has got nothing to do with what Paul's saying. He's not tracking down those lines whatsoever. He's tracking down the lines of make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And yes, he acknowledges that how we do that will lead to differences among us. But I would caution us against this simplistic reading that anybody who has any scruples or sets up any discipline in their life to keep away from sensual temptation is weak in the faith. And anybody who can do whatever they feel like doing where the conscience doesn't bother him, is strong in the faith. We're not going to track that way. I think we have to not make that mistake. But at issue here are two groups of people. And this we can take home with us today. Both of whom are striving to please Christ to the best of their understanding. But they differ with one another on how that should look. And much of the mischief is related to how they understand Christ's redemptive conquest. It's not understanding who you are that's leading to these disputes. It's not understanding what Christ has done and that He reigns over all of this and will settle all accounts. Calibrate to the risen Christ. And these disputes will be handled properly. Their consciences took them in different places, but the goal in that under the reign of Christ is to welcome one another, to embrace and encourage one another to display the unity of the gospel as it has conquered us in our varying ways. 
when the reigning Christ is your Lord, when the coming judgment seat of the Lord Jesus is on your spiritual horizon, then we can leave our brothers and sisters in God's hands and simply love. I can love you when my conscience will not permit me to do what you believe honors God. I can welcome you. Jesus instructs me to. I can love you when your conscience dictates things that I see as utterly ridiculous, foolishly restrictive in my way of thinking, but I can love you. I can embrace you. I can welcome you in. I can love you because I can trust you with Jesus. I can welcome you warmly because Christ has welcomed me. And that's how we relate to one another in the body of Christ. I welcome you. I get on the page with Jesus. He saved you. He saved me. We will stand before him. Let's join hands. And though we disagree here, that's not the end of the equation. We are not the final determination. Christ is. I love you. And I embrace you as he has embraced us. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord, for this instruction and acknowledge that we don't understand it all, how it should apply, how we should live our lives. We don't come with a sense of having conquered all the implications that's here, but we thank you for the call to love. We thank you that in Jesus we've been received. And I pray that you would enable us to so receive one another, so encourage one another, that our, our relationships do not cause division, do not get us to narrow in on our small opinions and defend them as our turf. But I pray that this call to love would lift our eyes to the risen Christ and to acknowledge that we don't see everything as we should. We make mistakes. We set up parameters where they shouldn't be there and we fail to set up disciplines in our life where they should be there. It's true of every one of us. Lord, may we so love one another and embrace each other that that relationship itself encourages righteousness and faithfulness to Christ. Lead us to this point. Lead us to this end. And bring conviction to each one who is walking in sin. May we as a church be willing to call sin, sin in our own lives and in one another's lives. But Lord, where there are these decisions that must be made with clear conscience, may we trust You with one another and know that You will bring about all the good that You design for Your people. We trust this, we rest in this as we look to that final day of accounting. And for anyone who is separated from Christ, may they not forget this truth that he or she will stand before the God of the universe. May that lead those who know not Christ to Him in faith and trust and saving hope today, we pray through Christ. Amen.